Buon pomeriggio, amici. Benvenuti to Kimberly's Italy, a podcast about our love of all things Italian. And welcome to episode 62. And the best news is, Tommaso is back. He's in the studio, a little sleepy perhaps, <laughs> but I'm happy he can be here to record this with me chip in his two cents about a few things, give his awesome chuckle, belly laugh, you name it. Ben Ritornato Tommaso. Grazie. That means welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Good return. Welcome back. Yes. 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 The professional nappers here. (laughs) He never used to be a napper, but (laughs) thanks to some meds he has to take, he's like, (laughs) (laughs) eventually that will, um, you'll get used to it. I hope. Or it'll go away. Or it'll go away. There you have it. Okay, so we are carrying on with this new episode of 62 with the southern half of the region of Umbria. And I'd like to start with the village of Assisi. And obviously, most everyone from around the world has heard about Assisi, thanks to St. Francis, who was born there in 1182. And Assisi, like every other place in Italy and all of Europe for that matter, existed way before Francis was born. From as early as 450 BC, so many battles took place in this area of Umbria, with Assisi being controlled by a slew of conquerors. And at some point in the 11th century, during a specific battle close to Assisi, Francis was taken prisoner. And by the way, his real name was Giovanni di Pietro di Bernadone. How's that? That's that's a real reduction. <laughs> right? It's, it's a mouthful. However, his father referred to him as Francesco. So, a lot of names and a lot of hats he wore during his short life. Francesco, or Giovanni di Pietro, founded the Franciscan religious order in his hometown of Assisi in 1208. So imagine that. He was only 26 years old when he thought, we need something new here. He's, he's like a startup tech entrepreneur. <laughs> yes, very successful at a, at a young age. However, in between putting Assisi on the map, he lived a varied life of good deeds, of course, but some different things as well. He renounced his parents, or mostly his father, for sure. I'm not sure about La Mama. All of his worldly goods. He cared for animals, all animals, and the environment, way before anyone else did. Everyone in those days just took advantage of, there's an animal, there's ones that we eat, there's these dog-type animals that would not be pets. You know what I mean? Animals, he cared for all of them like fellow humans. And the environment. Everyone in those days just thought, here's a lake, here's a river, here's a mountain. But he thought of it as God-given and he cared for it all and was very upset when people abused it. Interesting, good, right? Good to know. Yes. He was a, what do you call that? A early environmentalist. He was. And an early animal activist, too. So Francesco died at 44 years old and was declared a saint just two years after his death. That's pretty fast. Exactly, right? Think of how long it took Mother Teresa. And she's the most recent one in our lifetime, I I believe. Ooh, think how long it's going to take to get me there. <laughs> saint Tommaso. <laughs> <laughs> Dio mio. 
So the village of Assisi is one of the most visited sites in Italy because of his legacy and the basilica that was built in his honor also attracts everyone. And since the year 2000, the town was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. My personal first time in Assisi was while I lived in Milano, and I remember it was just a random weekend in the middle of a completely blah month, probably like March. No offense to the the month of March, but March in Northern Italy in Milano was like, ugh, gray. Yeah. All of a sudden, April was good. Things (laughs) popped. It was colorful. It was warm, but March, like, blah. So I went on a road trip with some friends. None of them were Italian because I think most of my Italian friends had obviously been taken to Assisi when they were young. And I remember none of us were Catholic. I was the only American. It was just a random group of people I knew from the photography industry. And we drove somebody's kind of crappy car. And the second we stepped out of our car and started walking into the village, all of us, we had never been there, all of us were completely just speechless, blown away. We're looking around at this ancient but perfectly preserved village. And keep in mind, this is at least 25 years ago before kind of mass tourism that we know of as today. As it is today, right? We were just in awe of what this place looked like. It was unlike anything we'd ever seen. And keep in mind, we were coming from like the busy, dirty and noisy city of Milano with lots of people, lots of everything. And then all of a sudden we're in the middle of this teeny village and it was as if we had just walked in to the Middle Ages. Hmm. Seriously, all of us from whichever country were like, now this is awesome. This is quiet. Right. And beautiful. And maybe we were just lucky, but basically I don't remember any other people there besides the locals. And we just kept walking up these very windy, very hilly streets. All the buildings were perfect. And I imagine it's even more well-preserved now because of its World Heritage Site. Very well put. I was trying to think of how to say it. How could it be any more perfect? But it's maybe a little more cleaned up and it's just an honor. And everyone is so proud of that. So I bet you it's just, I haven't been in several years. So I bet it's amazing. I also remember that we all saw the Basilica from miles and miles away as we drove there. I bet you it's like the largest building in Umbria outside of palazzos or fortresses, but you couldn't miss it. You're driving up and you're like, that's St. Francis of Assisi's Basilica. So very impressive. And this church is indeed incredible. It was started, as I mentioned, two years after his death and took only... 30 years to finish. So in 1253, it was finito. Still job security for a good stone cutter. Very true. (laughs) And all the artists. But think of, you know, the Duomo Milano. There's so many that took hundreds of years. But if you think of that, it's because they were in big cities. They were uh, commissioned by various popes or various rulers of the city at the the time. Well, the Duomo is so ornate. Very true. But this one inside, Dio mio, you should see these frescoes. And they were mostly painted by Giotto and his apprentices, Cimabui, Lorenzetti, and Martini. It's not the best last name, Martini. 
I would love that as the last name. And for those of you, any of you that studied art history in high school or college, you know the names Giotto and Cimabue. Well, I remember Giotto from art history. And, and Cimabue. You weren't paying attention I in wasn't that class. Pa- I wasn't paying attention. He was, you know, a but Giotto, colleague. Giotto never did much for me because it wasn't no. colorful or anything. It was overly colorful, basically. You're getting your art history classes mixed up. I guess I slept through that one. <laughs> Cimabue, most people remember because that's how you learned how to pronounce Italian words. Because his name is spelled C-I-M-B-U-E. Cimabue. <laughs> no, Cimabue. Okay, not important. <laughs> Carrying on. <laughs> and no one... No one can help but be impressed by the scale of this basilica in such a small village in the rolling hillside. And that's what sets it apart. Another reason why I think people go, because picture St. Peter's in Rome or St. Mark's in Venice, massive scale, big, huge churches surrounded by the city buildings, hundreds of thousands of citizens that live there. And then there's this church in Assisi, so stately, so proud, less ornate, but in the middle of nowhere. It's very, very impressive. I just want to tell you one thing about Assisi also, that while we were, while you were talking about this, I did a little bit of research, and one of the companies I follow on Instagram, Watercolors, their, their watercolors are made by hand in Assisi. To this day? To this day. They oh. are very, very expensive. Awesome. Do you remember the name? No, but I will for Christmas. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't I buy you some in Milano many you, years ago? You did. With those brushes? You did, yes. That was the best gift ever, yes, wasn't was, it? Yes, it was wonderful. Okay, I guess what I'm, uh, guess what is on the list for this Christmas 2022. All right, back to Assisi for a minute and not your Christmas present. <laughs> There are so many other significant architectural buildings to see in Assisi. Two massive fortresses or palazzos, whatever you'd like to call them, up on top above the village. There's also a temple. This is my favorite building, maybe in Umbria. No, I said that about the Palazzo Priori in in, uh, Perugia. Okay, one of my favorite buildings one of my most favorite buildings. One of, one of the many hundreds of most favorite buildings. I love them all. And this one is called Tempio di Minerva. In the middle of Assisi from the first century. Wow. It's now a church, but it has the fluted Corinthian columns out front holding the portico. And then behind it, like most of them, like the Pantheon, is the entrance but they light it at night. So the entrance walls are lit and then backlit are these fluted columns. It's magnificent. So that's my absolute favorite. Don't forget to walk around at night and see that. And so many more churches. And then again, all these stone buildings that literally make you feel like you're in the medieval ages. So Assisi and Gubbio, the other village we spoke about in a previous episode, also in Umbria, both make me so happy because it's not that often that you can walk around a perfectly preserved village from the past and just feel like, how many places in the world can you do that? There aren't many. There are many of 
old, old, old villages, but they're just not preserved that well. And right. I think, I mean, the villages in Tuscany, down in Puglia, everywhere in Italy, and I will say France as well, they make a big effort, but these particular villages, and they seem to mostly be in Umbria, are so well preserved and they have this moniker, one of the most beautiful villages in Italy. And most of them are in Umbria. Well, maybe that's also because Umbria doesn't get the mass tourism that Tuscany does. They will now after they keep listening to our episodes. Well, maybe, <laughs> but they, they haven't up until this point. No, I don't know why. I think Tuscany's just got the bigger name and the vineyards, and but the vineyards. yet Umbria does as well. Yes. Regardless, it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. And Assisi may, at this point, be a little more commercial than it was last time I was there, but it's still a gem. And every single person, every single client that I have sent there in the last few years has loved it, including... <laughs> Brigitta, who's actually my cousin, they hired me a couple of years ago to plan a trip for them that ended up in Puglia. They went to Assisi and she could not drag herself away. She couldn't leave. Stefano, her husband, was going, we've got a long drive to, to Puglia <laughs> and I want to go to that Machelaria in Norcia that was on the list. Didn't get to go because he couldn't get her out of the shops and the churches. You name it. She was obsessed. Then they got to Puglia, to the first village in Puglia at like 2 a.m. <laughs> That's how much people love it, I will say. And, you know, I wouldn't recommend going during Easter because it's quite crowded with Italians. And basically some of the other holidays like Tutti Santi, you know, all these religious holidays, the Italians go there It's it, or Catholics from around the world. It can be pretty crowded during a religious holiday. Sort of as a pilgrimage site. Exactly. They are pilgrims that go there for that specific reason. But I would like to go pre-Christmas one one year. I think it would, would be just beautiful. But then again, if you want to see it in its full glory, go in the blah month of March. Well, we could just go and you could buy my watercolors in person. Well, okay. And we'll do it in March. Okay. I like places... More to myself, and that's selfish. But anyway, so I highly recommend you put a CC on your list. Now, let's move south to the village of Spello, S-P-E-L-L-O. And like a CC, it's all stone. But the difference, I think, in Spello is all the buildings, all the stone is kind of this, like a rosy tint, has a rosy tint color to it. It's just beautiful, and they probably built from the same quarry or the stone that was available over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, and you just notice it more. You walk in, you're like, hmm, everything is exactly the same tone, color. It's stunning. It's also very well preserved, and like I just mentioned a few minutes ago, its nickname is one of the most beautiful villages in all of Italy, and... It does deserve that, without a doubt. Spello's entrance alone is so impressive. It's called La Porta Consulare, the, which translates to the consular gate or the consular door. And this Porta Consulare is from the first century, literally the first century. So think of all the tourists that have gone to Spello, because it is a 
major destination. It's even though it's teeny, it's written about in a lot of online blogs and books and whatnot as Spellos really beautiful. So think of all the tourists that have gone there and maybe they didn't read that part that La Porta Consulare is from the first century. You're driving under this archway from the first century. Still standing. Now, La Porta Consulare, I wondered, was there someone there basically like a consulate? Well, I think that word referred to another kind of role, but it was a governmental role, and that consul probably commissioned that entrance. They wanted to make a statement. It was a good way to pick up a little bit of coin for everyone coming in the door. Maybe. I'm not sure. Who would have record of what happened in the first century? Don't know. (laughs) Directly to the right of this impressive gate or the impressive porta, directly to the right is a stone street that I kid you not goes directly straight uphill. So for those of you driving in a rental car, that's a stick shift. For your first time in Spello, I highly recommend you don't take that road to the right. Okay? Can you imagine trying to go up in second gear and then the car starts to fail? I mean, it would just be a nightmare situation. Or, or you, know, you challenge yourself. I don't suggest it. I don't recommend <laughs> it. Just saying. Okay? As someone who drove his Fiat up the hills of Vermont, which is not particularly steep, but some of them are relatively steep. As steep as this little... Street and Spello, well, I bet. My Fiat went just fine. My Fiat 128 Spider. Mm, okay, fine. Well, you just have to know how to deal with that clutch. Bragging, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm dating myself also. <laughs> oh, because they haven't been made in 60 years. <laughs> just kidding. All right. So back to Spello. When you get to the main Piazza della Repubblica, You're surrounded by that stone with that rosy tint color I mentioned. Sweet little shops everywhere around this piazza. They sell local produce. They have art galleries, the ever-present little butcher shops, the machelarias, restaurantes, enoteca, wine bars, you name it, it's there. Everything you could want or need is in this idyllically beautiful piazza, but The thing is, as you look around, it's so perfect. You're thinking like, I feel like I'm in a movie set. (laughs) Truly, if you removed all the people, it would look like a movie set. It's almost so beautiful. It's it's almost fake looking. Marcello Mastriani coming around the corner (laughs) in a nice suit. (laughs) Right. It's it's Gina La Brigida. Wow. Now you're dating ourselves again. I've read history books. Yes. Right. Anyway, there are a few hotels in the Centro Storico of Spello, and there's also some rentals in these old stone buildings that they converted into, you know, like small apartments in the city center, in the historic center. And I really recommend that you stay a night, even in Assisi, Assisi, Gubbio, Spello, all these villages, choose one or two to stay at least a night in because the best thing to do in any of these ancient villages, in my opinion, is to walk around at night. When all the tourists have left for the day, you know, the day trippers or the tourists, the other tourists that are staying in the village, perhaps the locals, they close up their restaurants, their shops, everyone goes to bed. 
but yet the lights are still on, those minimal lights that light up the architecture from the exterior. Walk around this village, Spello, at night, and I swear it's the closest thing to being in the Middle Ages. It's just awesome. The only things that give away its current uh, state are the lights, the street lights, but they're kind of quaint ones. You know, they're not annoying. And the signs that would, you know, announce a gelateria or a ristorante. But other than the lights and the streets, um, the restaurant signs, it's it's unlike anything you've really ever experienced. It's a time warp. Yes. And in Montepulciano, when I was there last fall, I felt the same in that village. Just mind-blowingly cool. It's a gem of a place, so I suggest you put it on your list while you're cruising around Umbria. All right, let's go south of Spello to a town called Folino. F-O-L-I-G-N-O. Don't forget, you don't pronounce the G's in the middle of a word. So Folino. And most people that take the train from Rome to Perugia in Umbria have to change here since it's the main line from Rome all the way up to the northeast to Ancona, which is kind of a beach destination. So Felino's role currently is a main line train station where you switch trains. However, it's... Ancona's on the Adriatic, correct? Ancona, yes. Yes, right. Yes. Big super yacht facility. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. I didn't know there was a super yacht facility there. Interesting. So I have only been to Felino once in my life, and sadly... It was before the Calamita Cosmica was permanently put on display in the Museum of Contemporary Art in Foligno. So Tommaso's looking at me like, what is the Calamita Cosmica? Well, it means the cosmic magnet. That's a weird word, but it's a, it's a sculpture. It was done by an artist named Gino di Dominicis, and it is the, <laughs> the cosmic magnet is a 92-foot-long, enormous, giant skeleton. Really? Yes. 92-foot-long skeleton that looks exactly like a skeleton. I'm not sure what composite material he made it out of, but it looks like bone. It weighs 16,000 pounds. And as I said, it looks exactly like a skeleton, except for the fact its nose is very long, very exaggerated long and pointy. And think of a real skeleton, you know, the end of your nose is cartilage and whatnot. So you don't, you skeletons don't, don't have a nose bone, right. but this dude does. And it's really long and it's kind of Gino, the artist's trademark, his signature, signature role. No, signature piece. Piece, you could say. When did Gino bang this thing out? Oh, he's a contemporary. He was born in 1947. Oh, and sadly, he died around when he was maybe 50. Okay. And he finished this skeleton about seven, eight years before he died. So I had seen photos of it. I was dying to see it in real life. I shouldn't say the word. I shouldn't say that together, dying to see a skeleton. I was so hoping to see a skeleton, <laughs> his skeleton, in this place in Felino. I never did. Prior to it being put in Felino, it was on display in Versailles. Can you imagine in a I know of ballroom? The, I, I know of the piece right? you're talking about now. Imagine how cool that would have been to stand in one of those ornate ballrooms 
in Versailles and see this 92 foot long skeleton. Wow. They also put it in the uh, National Museum in Rome. They even had it exhibited outdoors in Milano in the, I believe it was in the Piazza Reale, right to the right of the Duomo. That's where I saw the picture of it. That's the picture I the, saw of it. There, Milano or Versailles? You're getting us confused. No, I, I said I saw it. I did. I'd never saw a picture in Versailles, but I do. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, it's so cool, and I want to see it. That's one reason to go to Felino, but in its own right, it has several amazing palazzos, palazzi, churches. You know, usual history, and it's biggest claim to fame, in my opinion, is that the very first printed edition of Dante's Divine Comedy was printed in Foligno at Palazzo Orfini in 1472. Really? Isn't that cool? And those of you that have listened to most of our podcasts may recall that in the episode, in an episode about Venice, we spoke about the role printing had in Italy, also down in Amalfi, the paper and the printing presses. So this printer in Foligno in 1472, which is only a couple, 20 years maybe after printing presses were, Gutenberg you know, invented the press. or available, I should say, right. um, they chose Dante Alighieri's Divina Commedia to print before anything else. Wow. Isn't that awesome? That's very cool. And Dante Alighieri was from Firenze. So maybe Felina was the first to have a press, and that is what they chose to print over anything else. What an honor, right? To have been the first to print Dante's greatest achievement 150 years after his death. Tommaso, I want to take you on a very long and slow road trip all through Umbria. I'm all in. Right? All in. We can go to every single one of these villages we've discussed so far. There's more to chat about, but I kind of think I'm running out of time here, am I? Because I was going to tee up um, Spoleto, Montefalco, Todi. Next week. Next week. Okay. But I know you'd love it, and I know we both would love seeing Calamita Cosmica together. (laughs) The 92-foot-long skeleton. See, Certo. All right, before we finish, however, I want to share this awesome fact that Tommaso pointed out to me this morning. We are now listened to in 99 countries. And I figured out the new country. What is it? Cambodia. Interesting. Very, very cool. That's just like incredible. That's so fun. I have to say, to be honest, because of this global reach... I have received so many emails inquiring about my travel planning services, and I've received a few jobs from them. But regardless whether they hire me or not, I have established a little email rapport with them, a little email friendship to people I will never meet in my life, but from all corners of the globe. And I personally think this is the biggest joy that we receive out of producing this podcast. Hearing from people all around the world. It's kind of fun. Our little kind I- of fun. Our little island all the way around the world. From our little island. Yes. All the way around the yes. world. It's very, very molto cool. <laughs> <laughs> One of my Italian friends in Milano, Marc Antonio, 
always used to say molto cool. <laughs> allora, grazie mille amici nostri del mondo. And that means thanks so much to all of our friends around the world. Va bene? Certo. Grazie tanto. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.